All right. Will you turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 7? Either in your regular Bibles or in your scripture journals. In fact, can you just, how many of you have these scripture journals? Can you just hold them up? All right, that is wonderful to see. Um, Are are you finding them useful? All right, Um, we will continue to keep those in stock in the bookstore so they're available to you. John chapter 7 this morning. We're going to look at a shorter passage this week than we did last week, although it's in the middle of uh, a larger, very interesting passage, the whole of chapter 7. But let me read, starting at verse 37 through verse 46. You follow along. This is God's Word. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came. Now just let your eyes go back to verse 32 for a second. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Okay, now back to verse 45. The officers then came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Let's pray together. Father, we want to say thank you once again for this privilege of gathering, especially knowing how eager you are to pour out blessing on your people. And so, Lord, we pray, we ask for your help. I ask for your help. Would you give me right conviction and right feeling, right joy, so that I can preach faithfully? And Father, would you give every one of us, as we hear, right conviction and right feeling and right joy, so that we might combine what we hear with faith. We ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, in fact, three times every year, the people of the nation of Israel were to make a trip, a pilgrimage, to the capital city of Jerusalem for special feast days. Every adult male was actually required to go But they typically brought their families, so they came as families. 
for most of them, I mean, given the relatively small geographical size of Israel, it would have been kind of like us going to Chicago. Except, of course, they would have had to walk. So it was often a multi-day trip to get there. It was a bit of an ordeal, but also it was very much anticipated. These were high points in the year for Jewish families. And during those gatherings, these festival days, the city of Jerusalem would grow just very crowded, packed with people, packed with activity. It would turn into just a hubbub of things going on, all of it especially focused around the great temple area. Three times every year. The first time in the month of April for the Passover feast. Perhaps you remember in the early parts of Luke's gospel, we read this about how Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So that happened at the annual Passover feast. And then, seven weeks later, usually at the end of May, was the second great feast. It was called the Feast of Weeks. And once again, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem would be made, this time commemorating the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But then several months would go by when the the people were busy with their agricultural responsibilities, their farming, but in late September, sometimes October, would come what was called the Feast of Booths. Now you have to say that really carefully. It was not the Feast of Booze. It was the Feast of Booths. It was a time for the people of Israel to gather and to celebrate the just-completed harvest and to thank God for that year's provisions, but it was primarily a time of remembering how God had provided for the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they came into the Promised Land a time when they had to construct along the way these temporary shelters, these booths. So during this annual feast, each Israelite family was to construct a booth, kind of live in it for that week, eating their meals in there and welcoming their guests and remembering God's provision for them, for their ancestors out in the desert. That was that was all spelled out very clearly in the book of Leviticus. Just let me read this. This is Leviticus chapter 23. God through Moses says to the nation, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this would last seven days and the last day was called the great day. It was kind of a special culmination of the week. And so for these days, the people would be reminded of that time in the wilderness and how God miraculously provided for all their needs. And one of the needs, you'll remember this, one of the needs that God had provided for out in the desert was water. 
water that he made to flow out of a rock, a hard rock. And in fact, in Old Testament passage, after Old Testament passage, water became a symbol of God's future provision, God's future blessing, God pouring out his spiritual blessing and life on his people on some coming day. Just listen, these are just a few of those places. I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. It's Isaiah 44. And the Lord will satisfy your desires in parched places. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Isaiah 58. I will sprinkle clean waters on you, and you shall be clean, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Ezekiel chapter 36. And it will come to pass that I will pour out, notice that language, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will pour out my spirit upon you. The prophet Joel chapter 2. So God says through the prophet Isaiah, Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You see, there would have been in the minds of the Jewish people this powerful expectation, this powerful anticipation of what God had promised, prefigured in that provision of water in the wilderness from the rock, which they now reenacted every year at this feast. On each day of the Feast of Booths, the high priest would take this gold picture and he would lead a procession out of the temple. They'd walk down the temple stairs and and out through the courtyard and they'd go out the water gate and turn right and walk a hundred yards or so to the pool of Siloam where he would take that pitcher and dip it in the pool and then he would lead the procession back to the temple. And as they came back into the temple, I mean, trumpets would be blasting and people would be waving these palm fronds and people would be shouting. And then that water would be poured out onto the altar there in the temple as a symbol of God's provision of water in the wilderness and as a reminder of all of that promise that God had made for the future. This anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out his spirit on some coming day, God's promise to pour out spiritual water. Are you getting the significance of this? That's what happened at the Feast of Booths And that's the feast that's going on here in John 7. Look back at verse 2. Now the, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now a very interesting thing happens here. Let me just read this. I think, I think you'll find this interesting. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. So he's up in the north. He would not go about in Judea, down in the south where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. It's like they're his little PR group. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. So you realize what they're saying is actually dripping with sarcasm. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So there's this issue here, right? Verse 8. You go up. I'm not going to go to this feast. Verse 10. After his brothers had gone up, he also went up. Is that okay? I mean, is Jesus being deceitful here? I actually like these moments in the Bible because it reminds us that Jesus doesn't always nicely fit into our safe conventions. But the fact of the matter, there's a fairly simple answer here. When Jesus says in verse 8, I'm not going up to this feast, that can actually carry the meaning of right now, or at this point, or more to the point, not on your schedule. I'm not going to be dictated to by you, brothers. So after waiting a day or two, Jesus does go to Jerusalem, and we saw in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. And in the following verses, verse 15, all the way down to verse 36, you see this debate between Jesus and some of the religious leaders such that there is a debate that is stirred up among all of the people. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they're seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So on it goes, back and forth, round and round, John gives us this picture of the crowd there in the temple and what it would be like, this swirl of skepticism and division and opposition and argument. So that's the setting. Jesus is there. He's observing all this going on. He's observing that water ritual every day, knowing the anticipation, the expectation, the thirst that is in the hearts of these people, hearing the high priest Every day as he poured out that water praying, please, Lord, save us, hear our prayers, send your blessing. And there is Jesus day by day, I'm guessing, almost jumping out of his skin. And finally, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, please don't miss those words. He cried out, in other words, loudly. If anyone thirsts, he cries out, if any of you, to that crowd, if any of you is thirsty, spiritually thirsty, let him come to me. And the only condition is you have to be thirsty. You know that when your body goes without water, your body gets thirsty. And when your soul goes without God, it gets thirsty. Because we were made to live on relationship with God. We were made to live on our connection with God. And when that's absent, our hearts, our souls get thirsty. So Jesus says, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does that sound familiar to you at all? We just flip back for a moment to chapter 4. And look at verse 13. This is when Jesus was talking to that woman at the well. Chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we hear the very same thing here in chapter 7 now. Except there's a difference. Like a big difference. There in chapter 4, Jesus speaks quietly with one person, this woman. Nobody else is there. And here, in chapter 7, Jesus is standing up in the temple where there's a large crowd gathered. It's the great day of the feast, the culminating day, and he cries out loudly in order for everybody to hear. He wants everybody's attention. And given all of the discussion and the debate that had been going on over these days about him, pretty much everybody would have been aware. So he cries out, If any one of you is thirsty, come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And all of the significance of all of those Old Testament passages, which would have been so clearly in people's minds at this feast, linking water and the future pouring out of spiritual blessing, this heart longing for God and for the arrival of his kingdom, kept alive by this feast and its rituals every year. And here's Jesus standing up and saying, announcing that he is the one in whom all that blessing has come. I mean, you can imagine the response, right? At first, shocked silence. And then all sorts of talking and gesturing, argument, division, opposition. John captures that in verses 40 through 44. Look there again. When they heard these words that Jesus had spoken... Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from Bethlehem? So there's a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. No one laid their hands on him. That's what John tells us happened. But the most important thing that John tells us is back there in verse 39. John says, helping us understand. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You know that the Holy Spirit has been brought up already by John. He's not new to us as readers of the Gospel of John. Flip back just for a moment to chapter 1. I just want to give you a really super quick tour of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. And by the way, if you had to choose just one book, to get a tour of an understanding of the Holy Spirit, John's gospel would be a great choice. Look at chapter 1. This is John's account of Jesus' baptism. Actually, it's John recounting John the Baptist's account. Verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now flip over to chapter 3, verse 5. This is... This is Jesus talking to this guy named Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So it's not entirely clear, but there is here in chapter 3 a little kind of preliminary word suggesting some future giving of the Spirit. Now turn to chapter 6. John is instructing his disciples after that great bread of life discourse that we saw last week. Verse 63, he says to them, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. So already, before he speaks those amazing words in chapter 7, at this feast, already Jesus has talked about, he's pointed to, he's hinted at, he's promised the Spirit would be given, and then this. Now Jesus doesn't name the Holy Spirit. But John tells us, chapter 7, verse 39, now these things he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given. And look at that image, please, back in verse 38. Jesus says, rivers of living water flowing. That is a powerful image. That is, you read that, and that is a, I want that kind of image. I mean, even before we have a clear sense of what that image is referring to, we want it. It speaks clearly of something full and refreshing and, and beautiful. It's attractive. We know it's good. We want it. Do you know what Jesus is getting at when he uses this image? Jesus is not just getting at whether or not he's true and real. Now he's getting at what is it like to have him? If he is true, would I want him? If I left everything else that I'm looking to for meaning and joy in my life, if I left everything else that I'm trusting in and I came to him, would it be worth it? That's what Jesus is addressing with this image, and the resounding answer to that question is yes. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what exactly is he talking about? You know, John's tour of the Holy Spirit doesn't stop here. 
Something really significant happens in just a few chapters. Jesus gathers his disciples in the, an upper room in Jerusalem. They're observing the Passover. It's the Last Supper as we know it. And while they're there together in that room, Jesus teaches them. It's come to be known as the Upper Room Discourse. And one of the major things that Jesus teaches his disciples in that Upper Room Discourse is about, you guessed it, the Holy Spirit. He tells his disciples that after he departs, he's going to send the Spirit, and he lays out for them what the Spirit will do for them and what it will look like for them to have the Spirit within them, what these rivers of living water flowing out from them will be. Listen to what he says. This is all, by the way, in chapters 14, 15, and 16. Speaking of the Spirit, Jesus says he'll be a constant helper to you. Anybody interested? He'll be with you all the time. He will dwell with you and he'll be in you and he will teach you regarding all of the things that I've said to you. He'll help you to remember all I've said. He'll bring it to your mind. He'll bring truth to your mind so that it can get in your heart and come out of your mouth. He will regularly be bearing witness of me and he will also be at work convicting people through your witness and he will continually be guiding you into truth, truth about how to live now so that righteousness will flow from your life and truth about what is going to happen so that fearlessness and hope will flow from your life. All of this blessing constantly, daily, given by and through the Holy Spirit, rivers of living water, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples they can look forward to. And please notice... Let's not miss the obvious. Notice just Jesus says rivers, not rivulets or intermittent streams. Rivers. And it's rivers, plural. Clearly Jesus is picturing something that is strong and consistent and abundant. And notice it's living water. It's fresh like a spring. And let's not miss the most obvious thing. It's water something useful, something necessary to our lives, arguably the most necessary thing to our lives. Friends, this is not a luxury. Don't think that the Spirit was given for occasional experiences of something dramatic and spectacular. Now, he's capable of that. But this, this is daily provision of something useful and necessary, something upon which we depend every day, daily communion with God by the Spirit. Daily refreshment from Jesus through the Spirit. Daily equipping for living my life by the Spirit. There is now, for the believer, if you have come to Christ in absolute trust, there is now a rich abundance of life and refreshment. There's a current flowing that sustains your spiritual life. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples in the upper room. And then something very special happens near the end of John's gospel. Three days after the crucifixion, Jesus rose from the dead and Mary, do you remember this? Turn over to uh, chapter 20. You, you got to see this. 
John chapter 20, Mary goes to the tomb. She thinks she's going to go and just kind of take care of the body. And she sees Jesus. And she goes and runs to tell the disciples. Chapter 20, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now listen. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. There's the understatement of John's gospel. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now listen to this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Remember chapter 7, verse 39? What John told us Jesus was talking about? Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So is this, in John chapter 20, that actual giving of the Holy Spirit? No. That happens 40 days later, on the day of Pentecost. We read about it in the very next book, the book of Acts. Chapter 2, and it's powerful. In fact, just flip over there. Just a couple pages past the end of John's Gospel. Look, first of all, at Acts. I'm making you work this morning. I know that. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus, just before his ascension, says to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And then look at chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire, entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what was that back in John chapter 20? When Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. Well, Jesus breathing on them is a symbol pointing forward to the full giving of the Spirit yet to come. It's just like a little earlier this morning when you held in your hands something tangible, something physical, something you could feel, a symbol. It's not the real thing, but it points to the real thing. Jesus' body given for us. It's not the real thing, but it points to the real thing. Jesus' blood shed for us. And in the same way, that, that breath, that physical act of breathing on them that the disciples could feel, his breath, his, his pneuma, which is the Greek word for breath and also the same word for spirit. That was a symbol pointing to a greater spiritual reality that they would experience very soon rivers of living water flowing up within their hearts because of the real presence of the Holy Spirit within them. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me will receive this gift. It's through me. 
the gift of life, which is God with us, in us, by his spirit, such that there will be life flowing in us and from us. All right, let me wrap this up by trying to bring this to bear very directly on us, on you, on me this morning. Do you remember how that passage that I read earlier ended? Verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like that man. I mean, think about this. Of all of the things those guys could have said to kind of justify themselves or defend themselves, excuse themselves, I mean, they could have said how the situation was so volatile that they didn't think it was wise for them to arrest him with all that crowd, and they might have caused a huge disturbance, and then the Roman soldiers would have had to come in. and They could have said all of that. And instead they say, no one ever spoke like that guy. They had heard what Jesus had said. If anyone thirsts, they were there. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What kind of person talks like that? I mean, think of all of the things that Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Who talks like that? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall, should never hunger. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. I will raise him up. No man ever spoke like he did. And those officers, when they went to report to the chief priests, they, they, they spoke truer than they realized. No human being ever spoke like that. We know, as those officers did not know, who this is. He's not an ordinary human being. And when people heard Jesus speak, though they couldn't explain why, they sensed, rightly, they sensed he speaks with authority, a completely different kind of authority. What he says is reliable. What he says is true. So when Jesus says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he says this, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, all those who believed in him. That means that you, Christian, can now trust and rest in the truth of what Jesus said. You know this there can be a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. I am afraid that too many Christians are relying on some subjective experience. Do I sense the Holy Spirit with me? How can I have more of a sense of the Holy Spirit with me? And when they don't have that, they just kind of practically dismiss the Holy Spirit and his presence in their lives. It's put out of their minds. Oh, they still affirm, they still believe but they are practically, functionally operating as if the Holy Spirit didn't exist. Listen to Jesus. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, her heart, will flow rivers of living water. And listen to John, who's speaking by God. Now this he said about the Spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. Listen, Christian, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, you don't have to drum anything up. What Jesus and John say here, I mean, it's either true or it's false, right? Those are your two options. And if it isn't true, then no amount of drumming up is going to produce anything. But if it is true, you don't have to try to drum anything up. But you do need to submit. You do need to engage and cooperate. You don't want to resist the Spirit. You don't want to grieve the Spirit. You don't need to drum anything up, but you do need to keep in step with how the Spirit leads and directs. You you don't need to drum anything up, but you need to yield when he leads and follow when he directs you to think or speak or act in one way and not think or speak or act in another way. You don't need to drum anything up. But there is a way to walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. And when you do, it will be like rivers of water. There will be this rich and refreshing and nourishing and beautiful abundance of the Spirit's life and power flowing up out of your life. At least that's what Jesus says. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every Christian in this room that these verses would open up new desires. Perhaps open windows that haven't been opened before. Perhaps open windows more widely than they've been opened before. Father, we want this life. And Lord Jesus, I pray for any unbeliever that might be here this morning that that they would, if they know the truth of this, that they would stop wavering and give themselves completely to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.